everyone, and welcome back to another episode of At War, the podcast of the Conflict Law Center at RSIL. Today, we're going to be talking about the Russia-Ukraine conflict. And before I introduce our guests, I'm just going to give a little bit of a brief about the conflict so far for those of you who haven't been following it in so much detail. So Russia has invaded Ukraine on February 24th, with Putin announcing that he was launching an assault to defend people who for eight years are suffering persecution and genocide by the Kiev regime. The prospect of Ukraine and Georgia joining NATO had antagonized Putin, who has demanded that NATO stop its eastward expansion and deny membership to Ukraine. The Russians have since allegedly targeted civilian infrastructure and civilian areas, and the Office of the United Nations High Commissioner for Human Rights says it has confirmed the deaths of 474 civilians, including 27 children, though they have warned that the true death toll is likely much higher. Since then, the United States and its allies in Europe have imposed the toughest financial sanctions ever on Russia, blocking some of their banks from SWIFT, many companies have suspended services in the country, and Germany has halted approval on Russia's Nord Stream 2 gas pipeline. The Russian economy is reeling from the impact of these sanctions. To discuss this conflict, we have with us Alexander Lawson, who is an assistant professor at Ziauddin University in Karachi, and is also currently a lecturer at the Open University, Alex is an expert in public international law, constitutional and administrative law, European Union law and jurisprudence, among other subjects, and has a wealth of experience having taught law subjects for over 20 years. Thank you so much for joining us today. Um, So just to start off, um, I just wanted to ask you what the long-term consequences of this are going to be. Have we actually entered into a new Cold War, as everyone keeps on saying, especially considering that there's a larger scale ground war in Europe since World War II? Yeah, well, I think um, that this Cold War started at least eight years ago um, in 2014 with the annexation of Crimea and the um, presence of what we pretty much know are Russian army soldiers in Eastern Ukraine. And the, the Russians have always denied they are, they say they're volunteers. Um, but where did they get all the equipment from um, is the uh, the obvious question. So I think, yeah, um, we are in a new Cold War, but I think it's been going a bit longer than, than we thought. Um, I'm old enough to remember the original Cold War and the, the sense of elation that, you know, we weren't all going to be destroyed in a nuclear war because we thought we were. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, it turns out that it was a very brief interlude um, in much the same way that some historians say that there was a European civil war between 1914 and 1945 with a very brief ceasefire between 1918 and 1939. In other words, it was all one conflict. And I think that's worth to say now that perhaps this is actually just the same Cold War. And there was a brief period where there was a kind of a ceasefire from 1991 till 2014 and 23 years. But we're back pretty much where we were. Uh, and, And in some ways, it's actually more dangerous. Okay, um, so yeah, maybe we'll unpack some of the ways that is more dangerous in in the discussion. Um, what's quite interesting for me is when I look at uh, the ways in which this is being portrayed, especially in the West, um, especially in you know Western publications. Um, in the current information war, you do have the West trying to portray Putin as a blindly expansionist actor, and on the other side, you have Russia saying, you know, there are these multiple color revolutions, which were vehicles for for Western influence, and a lot of people go 
even further than that and say that they were CIA-backed, you know, puppet regimes for the West who were very much involved in trying to push Ukraine into NATO, into the EU. Um, so can both of those be right? Like, which side do you find yourself falling on? Um, I think one can have some sympathy with um, Putin's overall feelings about what has happened to, to Russia. Um, one can have sympathy with those without necessarily thinking that they're correct. It's interesting, Putin gave a quote some years ago, which you can look up, um, and he said, anybody who doesn't miss the Soviet Union doesn't have a heart, but anybody who wants it back doesn't have a head. Um, in other words, you could be nostalgic for it, but it wasn't mm -hmm. that good. And what's interesting, he right. seems to have gone beyond that now and said actually he'd like the old Soviet Union back. Mm -hmm. So I can have some sympathy with, with the, um, the, the feelings that Russia has fallen and has been maybe... Um, mistreated in some ways without necessarily agreeing with those those sentiments um and and one could agree with that i mean the, the fundamental problem is that um that there are a couple of problems one is ukraine has to be able to choose its own future and if that means for example um joining alliances like nato or the european union then it's difficult to see how any state can be allowed to object to that and and still leave a ukraine that is in fact a sovereign state Right. In other words, that's what Putin's saying. He wants to demilitarize it, um, turn it into a kind of a vassal state, um, which doesn't have a military. Well, that doesn't make you much of a sovereign state. Um, so, so that's one of the problems. The other problem is that Putin may have a bit of a point about the various revolutions. I mean, there was an elected government prior to 2014. It was narrowly elected and it wanted to um, create a, a treaty relationship with Russia that would have moved them closer. It was then as far as one can tell, removed by a genuinely populist um, movement that protested against it. And as far as one can tell, the current regime in, in um, Kiev is a legitimate regime. And all the regimes since then have been legitimate. I'm using the word legitimate and not strictly the word legal um, because yeah. legal may imply certain things. And, and it, you know, I could also mention it's a democracy, but a government doesn't have to be a democracy to be legitimate. There are plenty of legitimate yeah. monarchies. The problem is that Putin doesn't see it that way. He sees it, as you said, as a coup um, and a Western-backed coup. Mm -hmm. And there is something to be said for that. There is something to be said for the fact that elections should be respected. Um, and um, the fact that Western states were, were glad to recognize this government, um, this, this pro-Western government, um, is obviously a source of some, you know, chagrin to, to Putin and Russia generally. Um, international law doesn't have anything to say about recognizing governments. If you want to recognize government, you can. It's a dangerous yeah. game, um, recognizing governments. And in fact, the UK has pursued a policy of not recognizing governments over, over the years, because you recognize the government and that implies approval. Uh, and then it does something bad, and then you, you seem to be recognizing it. So the answer is that uh, I can have some sympathy with, with Russia, and some sympathy with Putin's viewpoints without thinking that he's right or necessarily agreeing with them. And I think things could have been done differently and they might have led us to a different position. But I think we're talking about things being done differently 25 years ago, okay. not in the yeah. last six months. I think this was going to happen and it happened. Okay, uh, that's quite interesting that you end with that because that, that kind of brings me on to my next question. Uh, for me, when I, um, when I was researching and reading about this, it's very interesting when you look at the map 
and in terms of where which countries are now part of NATO. So when you look at Poland, when you look at Romania, and you look at the fact that Tbilisi and Kiev, they really have been seeking out NATO membership and how much that increases the threat to Russia immensely. Um, I mean, if you have Ukraine as part of NATO, you do, you will have, you know, um, missiles pointed at Russia about 500 kilometers from their border. So for them, they see Ukraine as an existential threat if it, if it joins NATO. Whereas I think not from the Western reaction we're seeing to this, which is that we are not going to send in troops. All we're going to do is send in arms and hope that there's an insurgency in Ukraine which kind of bleeds Russia dry. They're hoping that Ukraine will be Russian Afghanistan. You'll have a 20 year insurgency there that goes on and on. Um, and, and that the idea of this, of Putin being painted as like a very irrational, uh, irredentist figure is very strange if you look at it in the sense that would, would the US be okay with Chinese tanks being pointed at it from a Chinese backed, um, regime in in Mexico, for instance. Um, so yeah, I'm kind of, I'm kind of finding it a very interesting portrayal of him in the West. But also, I agree with you in that it is very hard to reconcile that with also the fact that you have a, a sovereign nation. And if Ukraine wanted to join NATO, if it wants to join whatever defense alliances it wants to join, it can do that. At the same time, do I find it to be quite provocative? I, I do think it is, especially when we look at the 1990s and the fact that oh there was this promise made that we will not move an inch further east from well, that, that, Berlin. I don't think that promise is, is valid. Um, that was solely in the context of the reunification of um, East and West Germany. Yeah, yeah. This is the, and, and Gorbachev, um, who's still alive incidentally, um, says that they never discussed anything else mm. um, other than Germany. I think there may have been a kind of there were no direct promises, but there may have been some implicit understanding that NATO wouldn't expand. Yeah, yeah. There's a cultural problem here as well, which is that um, it's difficult for, for, the, for the West to kind of understand Putin's, Putin's viewpoint, because their answer is, who cares if NATO is on your borders? NATO is not a, an aggressive force. What difference would it make? Mm -hmm. But obviously, when you come from that, tradition of seeing Russia as all Russians have always been terrified of external threats and internal threats. Yeah. Um, and they've always been willing historically to sacrifice um, liberty for security. And there are sound reasons for this. I mean, they were, they've been invaded a lot. Napoleon mm -hmm. tried to, to get rid of them. And then Hitler tried to do it as well. And it was a tremendous existential struggle to survive, which they eventually succeeded in. And, um, you know, there are, there are sound reasons for, for having that Fear, but it then becomes paranoia, I think. Um, yeah. And that, that, that may be something that, that's, that's going on here as well. Um, so it's, we're kind of speaking, we're not speaking to each other, mm. that the West and Russia are not speaking to each other in a way that they're really speaking to each other. They're kind of speaking past each other all the time. Yeah. You know, they just cannot grasp this, this, um, this, this very strong cultural uh, fear that, that um, Putin is, 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 is sort of digging into um, of Russia being encircled and eventually being threatened. Mm. And I think it's interesting to talk about NATO as a defensive organization um, that, you know, unless there's actually a threat or a use of force that they won't act. 
Um, but I find it a little bit hard to, to agree with that because I do think that NATO has proved itself to be the military arm of US hegemony. And so that actually the threat is real. And um, especially when you see a Russia-China alliance forming, uh, even though China hasn't said anything, it kind of wants to maintain its historical position with regards to its own semi-autonomous regions and, and its issue with them. It hasn't said anything, but there is it is definitely being pushed in that direction that these two superpowers are now going to come together. Um, but, but in terms of uh, how this could have played out in the last 20 years, was there any way that Ukraine could have averted war with the full-fledged declaration of neutrality prior to hostilities? Well... The, the, the problem is that there are very few states in the world that would accept that idea of, of neutrality. There are some states that simply have no military um, mm -hmm. for, for various reasons. Ireland is a very good example of a state that basically doesn't have a military. I mean, it has like four helicopters or something, and they're you know used for rescuing people. Um, it, it technically does have a military, but it's of no significance whatsoever. Uh, and that's part of a historical position that Ireland has taken of neutrality and conflicts. And it's partly reflective of the fact of the relationship with the United Kingdom, which is that the United Kingdom was a colonizing um, power there and mistreated them terribly. And the United Kingdom would, would never be that keen to have a heavily militarized Ireland next to it because it right. is a threat. So yeah. Ireland was able to, to remain neutral. So there's kind of a similarity going on there. And you mentioned the US and you know, would it be happy with a Mexico that was um, you know, under foreign control? Well, the answer is obviously no, two reasons. I mean, firstly, large parts of the Southern United States were Mexico <laughs> um, before they became Texas, yeah. And that was probably mm -hmm. illegal when they were um, taken. Um, and, um, and secondly, there's the Monroe Doctrine, which is that President Monroe basically said that Central and South America are the sphere of influence of the United States. Mm -hmm. And this explained particularly why Cuba was a, a source of, of threat and, and remains right. one, actually. It's very, very close to Florida, and it had, of course, the Cuban Missile Crisis nuclear uh, weapons station there, so Soviet nuclear weapons. In terms of, um, of accepting a declaration of neutrality, there's another example as well. If Palestine becomes a state, which I think we all hope it, it does at some point, it will probably be a demilitarized state. Um, mm -hmm. And again, that's something that they might agree to do um, because that, to get to get statehood, you know, is, is better than nothing. But it's still controversial. You know, if you're the Palestinians, you might say, well, we need some form of military yeah. um, at some point in the future because we're worried about what happens if we're threatened by somebody else. Um, so I don't think it's that easy to accept that idea for states. But my concern is that if they had issued a declaration of, of neutrality, say in January, I'm not convinced that, that would be the end of it, because that would be a victory for Putin. Hmm. And I'm concerned that, do you want to know what I honestly think is going to happen? I think there's going to be a, 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 some kind of peace deal, hopefully made. Those parts of eastern Ukraine that were supposedly independent, the Donbass region, will probably hmm. become independent or be absorbed into Russia. And then I'm worried we're going to have exactly the same problem a few years from now, um, that the whole thing is going to start over again, because it's appeasement. Okay basically yeah. and appeasement doesn't work um if yeah. you know if putin had faced stronger sanctions in 2014 we might not be here now right yeah but nothing happened he, he, he took some territory um in an illegal way and 
nothing happened. The Germans carried on buying gas from them. The Winter Olympics, you know, the, 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 the World Cup carried on occurring. Nobody cared, right? Right, yeah. So here we are again. So I'm, I'm not convinced the declaration of neutrality would, would be enough because I think the more victories that he gets, the more he may want. I don't mm. think he's insane. Um, I think that that's, that's ludicrous. Nor my mother thinks he's a psychopath. And, and you know, <laughs> that's just clearly not true, I don't think. But yeah. um, I think that he's rational, which is mm. you know, even, even worse in a way. <laughs> you know? yeah, yeah. He's also, acting in a rational did, way. Yeah, the idea that this had happened in 2014 and you did see some sanctions and apparently that since then, Russia has worked to sanction proof its economy. That's what, that's what people are saying. I'm not sure the extent to which that's true. Buying in foreign reserves and um, trying to, yeah, trying to create its own, its own ways of functioning without the outside world. Um, in terms, in terms of a negotiated settlement, I find, I find it quite interesting. I mean, I was reading a, an article by Anatole Levin who was talking about how we can fix this, and he was referring back to the Minsk Two Agreement and yeah. being like, you know. There are these conditions that will have to be met, which are demilitarization, which, as you said, is quite rocky for any sovereign state to accept that. Assurance that Ukraine will never join NATO, the restoration of Ukrainian sovereignty, but also with autonomy for the Donbass regions. And, and the idea that that will work in, in a kind of federation type that you, that you see in the US, that you would have states like that who are kind of Russian. Um, as, as someone was saying to me the other day that Russia is just Russia, but Russia with Ukraine and Russia with the with Crimea, etc., is a Soviet Union. Um, so it's quite interesting to see how we will see a negotiated settlement play out in that sense. But but to come now to the sanctions element, I find it very very interesting um, the idea that you have Nord Stream two being put on ice by the Germans. That was a gas pipeline that was being constructed. Um, and Germany has signaled its reluctance to cut off Russian gas entirely, still using Nord Stream 1. And the fact that um, Russia provides Europe with 40% of its gas. Um, so at the same time, you have all of these American sanctions and the Americans are going very hard. And the EU is also you know, doing the same thing, but at the same time, they can't give up their reliance on Russian oil, Russian gas, and the fact that actually American sanctions seek to hurt Americans far less than they would the EU, which has far more trade, far more mm. um, links of imports exports with Russia. And I'm wondering how far, how effective they will be, and also the idea that actually when it comes down to it, the Europeans are never going to expect their own people to make any sacrifices for Ukraine, as much as we're seeing on the news right now. Um, and so when it comes down to their populations actually making sacrifices, they're going to give up on the sanctions and then they're going to go back to trading with Russia, and especially when you look at Germany with gas. Uh, so how effective do you think these, these regimes are going to be? Well, I've al I'm always very skeptical about sanctions generally, um, because yeah. they usually only hurt the person in the street a lot. You know, we had a sanctions regime against, um, you know, Saddam Hussein that lasted for, um, you know, 12 years. And it didn't seem to have done Saddam Hussein any harm. He seemed to be pretty well yeah. fed at the end of it. It was people in the streets of Baghdad who were starving to death. Um, so I'm, I'm always skeptical that they can, they can work. Um, and you're, you're right. Um, there is a huge problem. I mean, full enough, the United Kingdom is in a relatively good position. It impo imports hardly any gas from um, Russia. But oh, okay. um, 
the rest of the EU does an enormous amount. Germany's in a hell of a mess because yeah. of their abandonment of their nuclear program, yeah. which is um, just a species of, of, of stupidity that I can't really understand. Basically because mm -hmm. the Greens have always had a, a, yes. yeah. a larger role in German politics because of the mm -hmm. coalition systems they have there. Um, so they've abandoned their nuclear program um, and they're now using coal, far, coal. Yeah. <laughs> you know, uh, they, they've, they've opened, reopened coal fire, exactly coal fired power mm -hmm. stations as a temporary measure before they can get all of their wind farms and everything going. Well, this is another, you know, catastrophe. Um, they've lost one source voluntarily. They, they, they still, I read again just two days ago, they're still committed to phasing out nuclear, I think by the end of this year. Mm. They can't do that just by, make up for that just by burning coal even if you don't care about yeah. the environment there just isn't enough coal-fired stations so i think you're right they're going to have to um carry on getting the gas and i also um have two two points i would say firstly i agree i think that if you start telling somebody you know in berlin that they can't have a shower today i know it sounds yeah. really banal but i think that's true if you tell somebody yeah. you can't have a shower today tomorrow they can put it for one day but three days in a row they can't have a shower because there's no hot water because of people who are dying a long way away, they're going to, you know, say they don't care that much about those people dying. Yeah. Um, it's mm -hmm. sad, but it's true. Mm -hmm. um, and the second thing I think is that um, if the sanctions are being effective, and it looks like they're working a bit better than I thought, one of the trading, um, uh, one of the, the, the credit agencies has downgraded Russia again to okay. C minus um, from B. They believe that there is an imminent prospect of default on the foreign debt oh, yeah. Right. Yeah. that they will mm -hmm. not be able to service their foreign debt in the immediate future um, they announced this under they would and then one of the secretaries said when we said we would we meant we would try as much as we could but we okay. might not be able to because of all these sanctions mm -hmm. so they've downgraded that them again but i think there's a there's an existential risk here that if you keep pushing them and pushing them with the sanctions do you think Putin is just going to give up and say we lost? Mm. Not this. This kind of has to succeed for him. No. Um, and I think you do run the risk of, a, of an escalation, um, to, potentially to a wider conflict, mm. with all of the the, the the horrible consequences that that um, that could lead to. Yeah. Yeah. You know. Yeah. I've been reading a lot about how. Um, American LNG producers are probably celebrating right now, even though it will take years to set up the infrastructure to send gas over from America. Uh, but the military industrial complex is celebrating because their arms are going all the way into, um, into Ukraine, but also the LNG producers are just like, well, great, now we have an entire market which is gonna be open to our gas. Um, I kind of want to pivot to the South Asia region and talk about how we've seen India and Pakistan formally abstaining from condemning Russia at the General Assembly, which it got a lot of flack for. Um, but the Prime Minister expressed his resentment at European ambassadors cajoling Pakistan to do more. Um, can Pakistan's domestic, this is quite a domestically popular policy in Pakistan, even if it's a relatively new one, but this policy of non-alignment, could it weather its dependency on packages like GSP plus and, you know, being on the fat of grey list if it continues to have relations with Russia? Um, the, to begin with, I think the position that, that Pakistan and India have taken is the only one they realistically could take, yeah. uh, which is largely just to keep quiet. You know, it's not even saying, you know, much in the way of neutrality, there have been some suggestion about that, but it's just not really saying anything at all. 
Um, mm. And um, I mean, unfortunately, Prime Minister Khan managed to find himself in uh, Moscow on the day that the thing started. Uh, he seems to be slightly accident prone of late, um, you know, thinking it would be a good idea to carry on with that, that trip. Yeah. So I think that the, the, the they're the, the only sensible positions they could take. And remember that although India has had a rapprochement with the United States in, in the last few years, particularly in defense cooperation and nuclear cooperation, mm -hmm. um, ending the sanctions because of the, the nuclear tests, and India now buys American arms, mm -hmm. um, yeah. it has a much longer relationship with the Soviet Union and Russia. Far more of its equipment comes from there. And India has always been very clear that it buys European as well, it buys from everybody. So it never ends up in a position where it's completely dependent on, on one of the, the powers. And I think that reflects that, that purchasing weapons reflects its overall political objectives, which is yeah. um, there is no reason to antagonize Russia over something that doesn't affect us directly. And I think that's something that, that Pakistan is, is, is following as well. Um, Pakistan's relationship with the, the United States is, you know, unfortunately one of like peaks and troughs it goes to incredibly being incredibly close and then being catastrophically mm -hmm. separated india has managed to keep a steady course but yeah. pakistan has gone from being very very close to being miles away to suddenly on september the 11th being close again to now being miles away again mm -hmm. um and maybe um prime, the prime minister is correct to, to try and you know keep quiet and just steer a middle ground um the, the specific um policy areas i think that pakistan um could look for help like you, you mentioned in you know anti-terrorism um, sanctions and and tr trading um, relationships obviously they need to preserve those and they need to um to, to plot a course that that achieves the best for pakistan yeah. um pakistan can't really do very much about this anyway all it can do is get up in the united nations and say something i mean it's it's, it's not on the security council at the moment um, so it doesn't have any say there. Um, and I think it's probably the wisest course. I, I don't think it's an issue that plays that much. I mean, here in Pakistan, I just don't think it, it's that important. And in a sense, why would it be? You know, it's not yeah. going to directly affect things here. Um, it may do, you know, with prices of, of oil and gas going up. But, you know, there, there's not much that Pakistan can do about it. So... You know, yeah, why, why Russia. yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, there, there, there is cooperation between Pakistan and Russia on gas and on mm -hmm. future pipeline developments. And yeah. actually jeopardizing that um, would seem to be foolish at this yeah. point. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Uh, particularly because, you know, here in, in Karachi, we, we do have gas shortages now. You know, they're not quite as bad as they were a month ago, but sometimes you go mm. home and there's no gas. You know? right. okay. um, and, you know, having a pipeline set up with, with Russian assistance or having more liquid natural gas come in would be beneficial for that. And just sorry, just to go back to what you said earlier about China, the chi I think the China-Russia alliance has been very strong for a, a decade mm. now. And I think the idea that China would say anything about this yeah. is ludicrous. Right, yes, yeah. the, the territorial integrity problem springs to mind and you say, what about Tibet and things like that? Mm -hmm. But remember, that's not reported in China. So in China, um, it just doesn't come across as being, this is just not something nobody knows about. Therefore, with China controlling the media like that, why do they need to make any kind of equivalency between Ukraine and their own situation? They don't. 
Yeah, fair enough, fair enough. And I'm, I'm thinking about it more in terms of like on the international plane, uh, especially with Pakistan. I mean, when we look at it in the context of Kashmir, it's like we would never, you know, support anything which leads to an occupation given our historical position on Kashmir. Um, and, and to talk about it now in, in light of UN institutions, uh, it was a very, I mean, I don't know, it was that moment for international lawyers when you're like, when you're just like, oh God, this is all of the worst things about the Security Council coming to light when you yeah. had the Ukrainian representative go up and say, you know, there's non-conflict happening, are you going to do anything? And he's addressing the president of the Security Council who was Russian and who was just like, this is not a war, this is a military operation into the Donbass. Um, but also we've seen that Ukraine has on the international law plane has done everything that it possibly could. Um, the ICC prosecutor has made a statement, 39 state parties have now referred the situation is going now to the pretrial two chamber. Um, the European Court of Human Rights has open, has uh, been has there's been a, file, a case filed there. They're looking into it. Poland has now opened universal jurisdiction for the crime of aggression, and um, there's a lot of uh, contention about whether aggression is one of the crimes for which you have universal jurisdiction. But also, they have filed a case in front of the ICJ which very, very quickly, a week after, took up the case and uh, looked into the provisional measures of it. Uh, and it's a very, very creative case under the Genocide Convention, which is the only convention under which they have jurisdiction, the Compromissary Clause. And they have said that Russia's basis came for genocide under the Genocide yeah. Convention, tracks the convention, makes it a dispute under the convention, and to use the basis claim of genocide to invade another state is something that the ICJ should look at. Um, and I was reading the proceedings as well the other day, and they make for very, very interesting reading because down, further down in the proceedings, they also say, oh, but Russia is also, you know, committing genocide against the Ukrainian nationals because it's yeah, going after which... Which is very, And they, you can tell that they're not very committed to that argument because there's no real argument there to say that there is a, is a case of genocide. But the one that they decided to focus on, which I thought was very, very interesting, was the idea of a state using genocide to invade another state and how the ICJ should look at that. Um, yeah. And it will be very interesting to see because I don't think Ukraine actually thinks that it will win on the merits, but it doesn't care. It wants provisional measures. And those provisional measures are, you know, a ceasefire, demilitarization, all of that kind of stuff, get out of the territory. And it just wants the ICJ to make a statement on that basis. Um, do you think that that would have an impact in, the, in that situation? I know as international lawyers, all we can say is that there's no enforcement. Um, um, the, the, well, the, the, that's kind of the first answer that um, Russia will not cooperate with the proceedings yeah. um, and they will just not accept the um, whatever the answer is. Um, so the, 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 firstly, there's that, there's that problem, that fairly major problem. Um, but even if you're talking about you know, the, the role of Essentially, you know, it's part of the propaganda fight. You know, yeah. that's lawfare. This is an exercise in in, in yeah. lawfare. Maybe a, a good exercise in lawfare, but you know, an exercise in nonetheless. Mm. I struggle with the idea. What Ukraine seems to be doing is saying that Russia has implicitly accused us of genocide. Therefore, we are using, we are defending ourselves against genocide. And therefore, the ICJ must have jurisdiction to hear the case because it can hear genocide cases. Yeah. Yep. yeah. So it's a very strange argument. And the ICJ has heard genocide cases not so long ago relating to the former Yugoslavia. And again, there were some complex arguments being made there and problems with that. 
but the, the surely the problem is going to be and this is what you said about the merits that the court is simply going to say there is no genocide yeah. <laughs> and once that happens that's the end of the jurisdiction um because there is no genocide um, yeah, we know yeah. uh, ukrainians were not committing genocide against those russians yeah, yeah. genocide is a very very high bar right intention yeah. is the problem yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. intending to destroy a whole or in part of a group um and just because people die doesn't mean you know that you, you were trying to, to to kill them and you certainly weren't trying to destroy a group and then at the same time again i don't do not believe that what we are seeing from the russian forces in ukraine which is your other point is genocide i mean it, it's 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 being an international lawyer is difficult because you say things like that hospital that was bombed today that's not genocide people go how can you say that and it's like well i'm not approving of it i'm not saying exactly. it's good i'm not saying it's not illegal i'm just saying it's not yeah. genocide right it's you know, it may be violations of the, the Hague and Geneva Conventions uh, and customer international law. Uh, we'd have to see a little bit more, though that hospital may, you know, have had military equipment stationed in it, in mm. which case that makes it more difficult. But it's not genocide. Yeah. And I, I just, I don't see any genocide from either side. Yeah. So I don't know how- And the idea that is so, um, it's so in the psyche of people that there's a hierarchy of offenses. And so it's like, it's not genocide, it's only a crime against humanity, it's only a war crime. Like there's no hierarchy. It doesn't have to be genocide, but it could be any of the other international crimes. Yes, um, but people like to say it's genocide because they yeah. think genocide is the, I mean, well, genocide probably is the worst crime, but you're right, there's no hierarchy. I mean, I think crimes against humanity has, has sort of become genocide light over the yeah. years, which is a bit yeah. of a shame. Um, because the thing in Myanmar, in the Myanmar case, also, which is that it's not genocide, but it could be a crime against humanity. But even if it's that, it does the court doesn't have jurisdiction. And and so I think that the need to like try and pigeonhole and shoehorn everything into the idea of genocide is purely a jurisdictional thing yes. in front of the ICJ, uh, which kind of makes all of the, the very interesting legal acrobatics, which is how do we tie genocide to what's going on? It's like well, we can't, we definitely can't say that genocide is happening, but you know. I, well, so, I thought it was a very creative argument, actually. I, I was just to add surprised. to that, on a, a simple procedural level, um, Russia has not made an accusation in the International Court of Justice or any other court against Ukraine alleging that it was genocide. They just said it in, you know, Putin just says yeah. it in his speeches. Yeah. So how would that trigger the, the jurisdiction of, of the court? um to say that genocide is an issue because it isn't yeah yeah and also um it's going to be very very interesting to go forward and see what happens in these uh in the icj and, and its ruling on provisional measures i also found it quite interesting because i was reading the icc statements and they had always said war crimes and crimes against humanity uh that's what the investigation was going to look at and suddenly out of nowhere i kind of felt like genocide had been added but it might have just been a reference to you know crimes under the jurisdiction of the court uh, but it is it's quite interesting how these um these forums in which we see these cases filed can kind of like play into one another so the extent to which the european court of human rights will look at what what's being filed in front of the icj um, but yeah, I was quite impressed by Ukraine immediately filing all of these cases and trying to do whatever it could on the international plane against uh, against Russia. But but yeah, it will be interesting to see. A lot of people are also talking about an advisory an advisory opinion yeah. by the ICJ, um, and that that will be quite interesting. I wonder what an advisory opinion, what the question will be before the court. Is this a, an act of aggression, or I mean, it quite blatantly is. But I I, I wonder what will be posted before the court. 
Um, I would guess it would be something around either aggression or uh, self-determination, because mm. these are both things. Yeah. Self-determination is something the court has has got a lot of jurisprudence about. Um, I think yeah. the, as you're right, the, the aggression point is it obviously is an act of aggression, but um, having the ICJ say it would be nice. But it yeah. could be something to do with the self-determination point um, relating to the um, Eastern Ukrainian regions. Um, but, you know, an advisory opinion, you know, yes, they're good. And lots of people know famous advisory opinions, but the, the two most famous ones in the last few, well, not few years, but the last 25 years were the uh, threat of use of nuclear weapons and Palestinian mm. wall. And they produced yeah. nothing by way of concrete <laughs> results. Yeah, right. Nuclear yeah. weapons are still, you know, everyone's building more nuclear weapons. Yeah. Uh, and the Palestinian wall is still there. Yeah, I see. I see in the wall case, the court went quite far in terms of how much it protected the rights to self-determination yeah. movement and that kind of thing. More, more pronouncements, which were interesting. Uh, but yeah, in, in the nuclear opinions case, it was basically like, we don't have an opinion about this. We, we well, don't. They, the, 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 the threat of using nuclear weapons one is one I find very interesting because they did kind of, of say um, something quite strong, which is they said that these weapons um, violate the laws and customs of war because of the effects that they mm. have, you know, so the way that they kill, basically. Yeah. Um, that, that was their, their, their objection. Um, and they said that, but then they also said at the very end of the judgment, this is the bit that I, I scratch my head about literally here, is um, they said, however, if a state was facing an existential threat, yeah. like destruction, then it might be justified in using them. And those yeah, two things yeah, cannot, exactly. cannot be reconciled, <laughs> yeah. Yeah? Yeah, you know, yeah. um, at all. You know? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Is there a customary prohibition? No. Are they going to violate the laws of war and international environmental law? Yeah, probably. Yeah. And then they were looking at very specific events under which, you know, if you had an army in a desert and you attacked them with like, you know, low yield nuclear weapons, would that yeah. be lawful? Perhaps. If you had a submarine, would that be lawful? A death charge, you know? yeah. Yeah, it, it was a very, uh, very confusing and very interesting how they really, really did not want to take a position. They were like, we're going to sit on this fence on the way to the Yeah, well, yeah. Yeah, I, I do, I'm just I'm drifting off topic, but I find it a very strange decision. Yeah. Uh, because there are plenty of ways that you can be killed in a war that are deeply unpleasant. That international yeah. humanitarian law doesn't say anything about at all. Yeah. Um, yeah. A nuclear bomb is bad if you survive it, but okay if you get killed instantly. Right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you just you just get vaporized. If you die of radiation poisoning, then that's pretty horrible. Um, but thank you so much for joining us today. This was such an interesting discussion. Um, let's see what happens in the future, if any of our pronouncements kind of come true in terms of a negotiated settlement and what that looks like. Uh, but thank you so much. I hope our listeners have really enjoyed hearing about this conflict and our views on it. And I hope you join okay. for the next episode. Thank yeah, you. Thanks for inviting me on. Thanks a lot.